Let's come and pray. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now and Lord, we want to acknowledge that you are the God who meets with us and who meets our need in every area of our life. That as we reach out to you, we find that again and again that you are there by our side. Father, thank you for every provision that you've made for us. Thank you for the way that you bless us in every area of our lives. And we pray that as you bless us in every area, that there'll be no area of our lives that we'll hold back from you. But that we will be ready to give ourselves without reservation. And as we give this offering now, it is simply an expression of the fact that you are Lord in every part, in every way, that you are Lord of your people. We bring this offering now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks we've been exploring a theme together and that theme has been overcoming in different areas of life, the different challenges of life. And we're going to bring that series to a close uh, this morning, looking at overcoming sorrow. And the passage I want to read is from John chapter 11. So it's John chapter 11, reading from verse 17. Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother is deeply moved in spirit and troubled and asked, Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid over the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But, Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. We thank God for his word given to us. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank you for the way that as Mary and Martha and their friends, as they mourned and wept, that you came to them. You you showed your love to them. That you brought them comfort and consolation. Father, we thank you that you're ready to meet with us. As we turn to you, you're ready to come to us and meet us also in our sorrow. Thank you, Lord, for all your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as I said in this series on overcoming, on how in Christ we can overcome the the various challenges that life brings our way, this morning, as I said, I want to finish by looking at overcoming sorrow, at how we can overcome sorrow. Now, your reaction might be, doesn't sound too cheerful. Well, maybe not. But, you know, it is a fact that at some point in your life, you are going to have to face sorrow. And if you don't want to be overwhelmed by it, or maybe at best endure it, then you need to know how to at least begin to overcome sorrow. For life does have its inevitable share of sorrows. Thank God it also has its joys as well. And and you know, often we, we can find ourselves dealing with the two extremes almost, if not actually, at the same time. For instance, when my two children were born, our two children, within days of their birth, I suffered a bereavement, both times within my immediate family circle. And it, it made it quite a confusing time emotionally, feeling that tremendous sense of joy at having a new son and then later a new daughter. And yet with a a kind of vague sense of guilt that I should be feeling sadder than I was at the same time at the death of a family member. Also sensing that there was a growing sense of concern among my older family members that we might have a large family. They were wondering who might be next. But you see, we do have to face sorrows in life. The sorrow of losing someone we love. The sorrow of losing maybe a job, the sorrow of a relationship or of a long-term friendship breaking down. The sorrow that hits us when we find that, that we or someone close to us has a serious, even maybe a terminal medical, medical condition. I came across a, a pretty amazing true story that relates to just that kind of situation. And that is a man who just prior to Christmas one year received the news that he had a very, very serious cancer, with treatment for this being scheduled to begin just after the new year. His response, well, he went to his pastor and he said to him, the Christmas services better be good this year because they might be my last. My thoughts immediately when I read that were, what courage! What an attitude and what a sense of humour. But I also thought, what pressure. I wouldn't want to be that pastor. (laughs) How, though, are we going to deal with our sorrow? How are we going to manage 
our sorrow. What I want to do with you now this morning is look at the two main contrasting approaches to sorrow management. Two alternative approaches that in fact I think are diametrically opposed to one another. So first, I want to look at the traditional approach. And that is the, the approach that, that by and, and large is accepted by our wider society today as the way to deal with sorrow. The approach that many of us have been brought up with and that almost unconsciously we've imbibed and, and, and maybe made our own. And then after doing that, I want us to move on to look at the biblical approach, I believe, at God's approach to sorrow management. Now, the way I want to, to take you through the, the traditional kind of I learned this at my granny's knee approach to sorrow management is by taking you through the life experience of an imaginary little boy. We'll just call him Jimmy. And this isn't any kind of novel creative idea, by the way. I don't want to say that. This is a well-known textbook approach to this. So just imagine little Jimmy then. Just imagine he's five years old and his dog dies. He's heartbroken. I understand this, by the way. Crying his little eyes out, bawling and sobbing away. So what do his parents do? Besides buying a pair of earmuffs, or gagging little Jimmy, neither of which are recommended. Well, they want to do something, don't they, to, to bring relief, primarily to the little boy's pain, but also as a byproduct to their eardrums. So they say, don't cry, Jimmy. We'll buy you a new dog on Saturday. Now, you see, here what they've done is they've started to lay down the first two steps in the world's approach to sorrow management. Number one, bury your feelings. And number two, replace your loss. As soon as you can, replace that loss. Now, a few years down the line, Jimmy has his, his bike stolen. And his mum and dad go through just about exactly the same process with him. Then there comes the big one. In his mid-teens, he has his first real girlfriend. He's head over heels in love. Then what happens? She dumps him. His earlier heartbreaks are as nothing compared to this. He's up there in his room night after night, stereo turned up with the, the love ballads playing away, staring at her photograph with tears in his eyes. And then his mother comes in that fount of all feminine knowledge and wisdom, saying, don't feel bad about yourself. It's her problem. She's got no taste. <laughs> and besides that, guess what she said next? There's plenty more fish in the sea. Now at this point, well, Jimmy's just about got steps one and two off Pat by now, and they're going to stay with him for life. Number one, bury your feelings. Number two, replace your loss. A little while later, though, Jimmy's grandfather dies, and he's at school when somehow he gets to know. And he's sitting there in the maths class, sobbing away. I often used to be that in the maths class, not because of bereavement, usually when I got my exam results, but he's there. But he's sent to the office to be alone. That's what they do. They send him away, isolate him in the office. A little while later, his, his dad comes home and takes him home. And as he comes through the front door, he, he sees his mother sitting 
in her chair, breaking her heart, and he wants to go with her, go to her, he wants to be with her, but his dad holds him back. No, son, he says, leave her alone. Let her be alone for now. So Jimmy learns the next step in this world's, this traditional approach to sorrow. Step three, grieve alone. And so he went to his room, and he was alone, and he cried, and he'd never felt more alone in his whole life. But eventually, Jimmy managed to bury his feelings just by keeping himself busy. That's what he was told to do. But a little while later, though he tried this, he began to think a bit more about his grandfather again, just about all the special things they'd done together, the things that he'd taught him, all the time he'd spent with him, the memories he had, and he felt a deep, deep sense of loss. And he's tried to talk to his dad about it, but in a gentle way, though, his dad cut him short. Give it time, he said. Just give it time. And so Jimmy learned step four. Time heals mystically, magically, all by itself. It just does it. Time heals. Well, Jimmy gave it time, but still he felt in some ways trapped in a cell of loneliness. And particularly he felt sad because he felt that he'd never really thanked his grandfather in the way he wanted to for all the things he'd done for him. He'd never really told him how much he loved him. So Jimmy learned yet another lesson, that he would have to live with regret. If there was any unfinished business with anyone, that he would just have to buck up, get on with it, and just have to learn to limp through life living with regret. So finally then, as a result of all of this, Jimmy came to the conclusion that close relationships cause a lot of pain. And so Jimmy learned the last lesson, took the final step in the traditional means of dealing with sorrow. Don't get close. At least don't get too close with people because it hurts too much. Keep even those closest, just a little distance from yourself. Build some kind of wall around your heart because that's the best way to save yourself pain. And the question is though, does this approach to sorrow management really address sadness and loss? Does this lead to healing? Does this overcome sorrow? But I would say it would seem not. For the evidence is that this kind of approach to sorrow, which I think is a kind of mixture between sorrow, grief, avoidance, sorrow, grief, suppression, that this is so often in at the roots of many of the physical, emotional, and mental problems. Depression, anxiety, drink, drugs, eating disorders, inability to form close relationships, etc. In at the roots of so many of these crippling problems lies grief that has not properly been dealt with. Lies an, an inability to properly deal with sorrow and grief. Okay, we've looked at the traditional approach to sorrow, and I've given what I think is my verdict on it. Let's move on to do what we said we would do to contrast this with the biblical approach. Okay, so first the world says we should bury our feelings, hide our feelings. In contrast, the Bible says that we should grieve. 
That we should grieve. First Thessalonians 4.13. That we should grieve. Yes, we should. But not as the world grieves. Not as someone without hope. No, because we believe that our loved ones who love the Lord, that they've got to be with him. That they are now in that better, best place. But still we grieve. Nonetheless. Yes, we grieve. We grieve for ourselves. We grieve for our families. We grieve because of our loss. Because the one that we loved is no longer with us. And so there's an empty place there in our hearts that initially at least is filled with heart and pain. And if you want a a good example of somebody who actually knew how to grieve, then look again, go again to that passage read earlier. Go to the, the graveside of Lazarus in John 11. Because we read that at the graveside of Lazarus that Jesus wept. Now there may well have been other factors involved in the tears of Jesus here. But surely a major reason for that must have been that as here Jesus saw the impact Lazarus' death was having on those who loved him, on his family and friends, that so Jesus wept for them. He wept at their pain. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but I think it's one that speaks volumes as to how God wants his people to deal with sorrow and loss. And you know, weeping has been called the language of the soul. It's been called the cleansing river of emotional release. That's the way God made us to be. God made us and intends things to be like that. He intends us to express what we feel. Step two, society says, replace the loss, or at least move on from your loss. Leave it behind you as soon as you can. Do it as soon as you can. This isn't a belief either. This isn't God's way. God doesn't want us to replace our loss immediately as a kind of way of running away from it, trying to avoid it and evade it. Now, God wants us, I believe, first of all, to take time to review our loss. That is, God wants us to face up to our loss, and he wants us then to work it through with all its implications for our lives. This, I know, is the advice that's given by by good Christian counselors, that when people suffer a bereavement, when they, they suffer a loss in their lives, then if somebody goes to them, they tell them, to just slow down the pace of their life at that point. And they tell them to take time. Take time to talk about their loss openly. Take time maybe to write about it reflectively. And certainly take time to pray it through thoroughly in the presence of God. We shouldn't try just to rush through grief. That isn't God's way. It isn't the Bible's way. Read through the Psalms for proof of that. Look at 2 Samuel, David's experience of grief at the death of his son Absalom. And you know, in fact, the real authorities in our world, not the kind of, you know, this is what everybody thinks, but the actual people who study and think about this, they see grief as a lengthy process, a process that has to be worked through, a journey we have to go through. Four stages have been identified as as part of the normal grief process. The first one is numbness, pining, depression, and then recovery. 
with the way that these things work out in our life, the period of time that each lasts being different from person to person. We're not all the same. And when you know, we say that there are four stages, it's not that you, you sort of pass through one and that's it. You, you never see it again. You never experience it again. That bit's over for you. You kind of do your, your pining phase, if you like, and you just get that all over. Not each of these phases has got their main characteristic. But that doesn't mean that there aren't times when we don't go back and for a time revisit that, when things don't get mingled together. And when we talk about recovery, that final phase, let's just define that and clarify that a little bit. C.S. Lewis says that getting over bereavement is to be compared with someone losing a limb. For the man who's had his leg amputated, for that man, part of him is missing and will always be missing. If though he gets a, a prosthetic leg and he learns to walk again, many people would then say he's got over it. Well, he has, but you see, life is never quite the same. Never exactly the same. It's the same with bereavement. Bereavement is about learning to live with loss and adjusting to a new way of life. But it's never quite the same. Never exactly the same. But with God's grace, with God's help, as he works in us, as he changes us and enables us, we can recover from bereavement. And even in areas of our lives, we can actually grow through our experience of bereavement. Because of our experience of sorrow in the many ways that it can come to us in life, we can grow and develop. Third step, society says, grieve alone. Keep it private. Don't let anybody see. Don't let anybody get in. God says, the Bible says, grieve in community. Just read through the stories of bereavement in the Bible. And I say again and again, you'll find that people grieve not alone, but together in community. We mentioned the, the funeral of Lazarus in John 11. Well, John 11:19 tells us that many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And Romans 12:15 tells us that as God's people, we have to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And I mean, again, just look at, at Jesus, at his experience, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he there came face to face with the sorrow that he was to confront at the cross, the greatest sorrow imaginable. Did Jesus go to that alone? He didn't. Not because, well, they maybe weren't the greatest support to him, yet still he took with him Peter, James, and John. And then the disciples, after the death of Jesus, when they were grieving his loss, when they were lost in their sorrow and pain, where were they to be found? John 20 tells us they were found together in the upper room. And let me just here say to you, it's great to be with people in the good times. It's great to be able to share with people in their times of joy and to celebrate with them. These things are wonderful, but nothing deepens a relationship like sharing together in a time of grief. Now, as far as, as grieving with someone, 
and you know, kind of grieving community. As far as that concerned, again, those who work in this area, I've got some practical advice to give, a list of to-dos and not to-dos. Here's the to-dos first. If someone you know, someone close to you loses someone, then acknowledge that loss. Acknowledge it. Let them know by visiting or writing or phoning, whatever. Let them know that you care and that you are standing with them. Now, you see, what actually happens is that fairly often in these kind of circumstances, we get paralyzed by the fear, don't we, of not knowing if we'll do it right. You know, should I... A visit, or, or should I just phone or write? And, and what, what should I say? What, what will I say? Will I get, the, get it wrong? Will I, will I manage to say the right thing? And we got all these things going around in our mind, and a week or so passes by, and then we decide it's too late to do anything. That's not what I say to you. It's better to do it wrong than to do nothing. It's better to do it late than never to do anything. It's better. Second, give the person permission to grieve. Let them express their emotions. Let them know that it's okay. It's okay. Third, free them up to talk about their loss. Let them say things. Don't change the subject because it's uncomfortable for you. Fourth, offer practical help wherever you can. And we've done that very well in this church in the past. And as for the not-to-dos, here they are. First of all, go easy on the platitudes and easy statements. Because while some of these things may even be true, yet in the early stages of grief, they can be very hard to take and to hear. We're talking about things like, it was God's will. They had a full life, or I understand how you feel. You maybe get some degree of empathy, but you don't know exactly how they feel. Second, don't encourage them just to get up and get on with it. You know, just move on because that's not healthy. We've said that. They've got to walk through their grief and you've got to allow people the space and time to do it. Fourth, don't be alarmed by off-the-wall comments because, you know, people who are distressed and who are hurting will often say things as a way of just letting off steam as a way of releasing some of that pain that's building up in them. And I would say, let's make sure that we are a safe sounding board. Make sure that you repay the complement of trust with understanding. Well, the next step in the traditional approach to sorrow management is that time will heal all by itself. You know, just give it time and everything's going to be okay. I don't believe that so. I don't believe it. I don't believe that just in and of itself, time does heal. No, we've got to take those other steps along the way that we've spoken of. We've got to put those other ingredients into the pot if we're to be healed of our soul. And always, ultimately, we've got to remember that there is actually only one counsellor who can bring true healing to our soul. There's only one counsellor who can meet with us in our grief and take us through that grief. And that counsellor is the Holy Spirit. We've got to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. We've got to turn to God. We've got to seek God. 
The Holy Spirit, who Jesus tells us in John's Gospel, John 14, 15, is the counselor, the comforter that the Father sent to be with us. Do you know something? 60 or so years ago, all the industrialists and scientists, they, they thought then that if you buried toxic waste deep enough, and if you just left it for long enough and forgot about it, that it would all just go away. But the facts are, it didn't work like that. It seeped out. It often got into the water table and it has caused enormous damage over the years to animal life, agriculture, to human life. And grief is just the same. Unless you take those other steps that bring healing, time itself will not just heal. Instead, your grief will eat away at you from the inside. And it will seep out into your life in all sorts of destructive ways. Step five. The world says you've got to learn to live with regret. That if there was any unfinished business, you've just got to buck up now and get on with it. Again, to the contrary, I would say I believe that with God's help, we can deal with our regret in a variety of ways. Recently, I came across the story of a, a young man who was going through a real time of conflict with his father. And then suddenly, his father died. Just one day he died. And he was heartbroken. Because, you see, deep down, he loved his father. He knew that there were changes that they would both need to make. He knew there were things that would have to be worked through. But he was so sorry. Sorry that he hadn't offered an opportunity to tell his father that no matter what, that he loved him. A chance to say that he was sorry for some of the things that he'd said in the heat of a moment. He went to a Christian counsellor and that counsellor shared with him John 12, no sorry, Romans 12, verse 18. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So what he did was, he wrote down in a letter all the things that he wished he'd been able to say to his father. He invited his close family to be with him and then shared this with them. And this brought this young man a real sense of peace and a sense of resolution. Now this isn't perhaps a way that all of us would want to go, but we can deal with our regrets in the sense that we can bring them before God and we can let them go in his presence. Finally, the world says that love hurts. Lost hurts. So don't get close. Don't get close to people because it just hurts too much. The Bible's response is to say, yes, love hurts. But love is worth it. Love is worth it. C.S. Lewis, I quoted him earlier, one of the greatest writers of the last century. For much of his life, he was a confirmed bachelor. Then in the latter part of middle age, he fell deeply in love. He enjoyed three years of blissful marriage. And then his wife died of cancer. He was heartbroken. And this led him to write a, 
a book of heartbreak and honesty, a grief observed. But all I want to do is just finish by quoting with, to you from another book written by him, a book called The Four Loves. And this is what he says. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. There is a cost to pay for loving. There is. But there's a far greater cost to pay for refusing to love. Say again, I truly believe that with Christ at the centre, we can recover to some degree from any loss. I believe that God can even use that loss to help us to grow in him, to help us to grow closer to him, to help us to love others with an even deeper love. All that can happen. But let's never forget that actually nothing can ever take away from us our greatest treasure. That nothing can ever separate us from our greatest love, the love of God in Jesus Christ that will be with us forever. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you that, Lord, you give us a way for life. You address every need and every circumstance of our life. Too often we are conform to this world. We follow what this world lays down as the right way to be, the right way to live, the right way to act, the right way to think. Lord, help us instead to be transformed. Help us to be transformed as we seek you in your word, as we open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Lord, do your transforming work in us, we pray. This we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen.